Thanks, Gordon. So as Pastor Gordon said, or Elder Gordon said, which I think is the same thing, but I uh, hope you all were able to get a copy of this Genesis. As he alluded to, we will probably be in this book for some time. So if anyone needs a copy of it, just raise your hand. Uh, you can have this copy. And uh, that will be something that we would love for you to fill out and meditate over and think about as we go through the book of Genesis. And so I'm very excited about getting into Genesis, and this Bible is one of the least reasons that I'm excited, but it is an exciting thing. And from a Chinese standpoint, I'm very happy about these because these cost about the same as the Philippians that we got. And Philippians is four chapters. Genesis is 51 chapters. It's a much thicker book. And they even give you several blank pages in the back, which will be very useful because what we will probably do is we'll probably spend quite a bit of time at the beginning of the book of Genesis, and then uh, we'll speed up as we go through. But there's a lot of reasons to be very excited about going through the book of Genesis. You've perhaps heard the line of the Bible being history as in his story. But I'd like to add some nuance to that statement because this is not just a story about God. Especially in the sense that we would look at the Bible to give us a comprehensive view of God. Because the Bible in one sense just gives us one facet about God. It just tells us about God and his work to bring creation into existence, which includes all of humanity. The Bible is not a book of history. It's not a book of geography. It's not a math book. It's more essentially a story about God and the people that he created. And so while the Bible is God's message and he is the author of it, this is also our story. The story about us and the one who created us and loves us and is working to redeem us. And so I wouldn't call the Bible his story in the sense that we are just incidental characters any more than Charlotte's Web would just be about Wilbur the Pig or the Lord of the Flies would just be about Ralph. This is your story and my story. And so when we begin Genesis, we are beginning God's story about us. And so let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I am so profoundly thankful that you've chosen to speak to us and to tell us the story of creation, your creation and how you made the first man and the first woman, how they fell into sin, and how the one who created them was not content to let us fall away, but has continued speaking to us, even to this day, to tell us the wonderful story of how our Creator came for us, worked to redeem us, and continues to call us 
to return to Him and enter into a partnership with Him in the grand work of salvation and redemption. And so, Lord, as we begin this Sunday, but not just this Sunday, but as we begin this book, I pray that as we learn more about this story, that we would become more and more devoted to you, that we would desire to serve you, to honor, to glorify you, to play our part, the part that you've given us in what you are doing, and that we will come to delight ourselves ever more fully in you. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so, if uh, you have the Bible journal, or if you have your own Bibles with you, this is not a hard book to find because Genesis is right at the beginning. And in terms of thinking about Genesis as not just a book about God, I'd like you to think about this, the, the hymns that we just sung. I didn't <laughs> give you a short story about the second hymn that we sang that may not have been familiar to many of you. My first introduction to that hymn was, I have to say, not a very mature act on my part because our uh, fellowship had gathered in church. This was back in the 90s, and we were singing Christmas songs. And uh, uh, the pianist was just basically taking requests, any requests of things that people wanted to sing. And I'm flipping through the hymnal. We were using hymnals back in those days. And I saw this song, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. <laughs> and I thought, what a ridiculous title. And so I said, can we sing Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence? I had no idea, as Irene just introduced us, uh, of the amazing history and the beauty of the words. And so uh, I, I, I asked uh, if we could sing that song, uh, kind of as a joke. And then when we actually when the pianist played it, uh, I think you could hear as, as Shanice was playing that for us today, it's such a beautiful hymn. And then as we read the words, they're such profound, moving words. And uh, I have to say, I was a little ashamed. But as we were singing these songs this morning, they were songs about God. But I want you to notice something. All these things that we're singing about God tell us not very much about, for example, what the Father does with the Son when they're out on a holiday, or even just in terms of their usual relationships with each other. It's given to us in a particular way, right? We have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit, and, 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 and that tells us a little bit about the relation between them. Uh, but there's some suggestion that, that this relation is particular to creation. Because you think about the Psalms where the Father says, today I have made you my son. And the thing that you'll notice about these hymns that we sing is they all describe God with a particular perspective. And that perspective is they describe God in relation to us. Think about all the titles uh, some of them which were mentioned in those songs. The Lamb of God, the Son of Man. The Son of Man, uh, in, in a sense, is actually a uh, more divine title, but it's a messianic title that was given to the expected deliverer of the Jews. And so all these titles are not so much describing 
God in terms of his eternal state and the internal relationship between the Father and the Son. But these things that we know about God are particularly crafted in terms of God's relationship to us. Not even God with respect to the angels. I mean, we know that the angels worship God and they are around his throne, at least in some perspective, glorifying and honoring him. But even in the picture we're given in Revelation 4 and 5 of the throne room of God, it's couched in terms that help us understand how we then are coming to worship God. And other than that, we have very little insight into what's going on in heaven. And so the Bible wants to tell us about God, but it's telling us about God in a certain way. It's telling us about God in his relationship with humanity, with you and I. And so when we come here to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, uh, that's a perspective that I think is helpful to have. And here's another one. Uh, One of the things that Irene and I uh, used to like to do, and the reason I say we used to like to do them is because uh, what we like to do is watch these uh, murder mysteries, Agatha Poirot's, uh, Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. I don't know how many of you are uh, familiar with that detective. But we would always be very careful when we started one of these shows because at the beginning, there was always something very significant that happened. And if you paid really close attention, everything, and, and, and actually if you watch the whole thing and then you go back and watch the beginning again, you go, oh, that's why you know, that guy was running down the corridor or that's why that guy was limping down the hallway or something like that. And, 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 and there's a clue in there that tells you or would help you figure out what's going on throughout the mystery. And so um, uh, one of the, I hope this doesn't keep you from like inviting me to your home to see things with you, but we would sometimes watch it and I would pause and I would, I would rewind like five seconds <laughs> and, then, and then we'd watch section and then I would rewind again. And watch. But we always made sure we saw that first part very, very well. And because that oftentimes gave a clue if you wanted to be one of those people. So we would also do this thing where before we got to the end and he, he says who did it, we'd stop and I'd say, okay, who do you think did it? <laughs> and then we'd lay out like all the different clues and, and why we thought so-and-so was the guilty party. Uh, but God in the beginning of his story here in Genesis is not actually trying to mislead us. He's not trying to conceal something. He wants us to know the story. He wants us to know his relationship with us and who we are and what we need to do to come back into relationship with him. And one of the ways that you can see this is that if you've ever gone to the book of Revelation, isn't that kind of like maybe the, one of the hardest books of the Bible to understand? I mean, there's just so many strange things that are going on there, uh, from you know, weird beasts coming out of the ocean, uh, strange women riding strange beasts and things like that. And part of the reason Revelation is so difficult to understand is because the whole Bible is there to give us a context. And at the beginning of the giving of God's revelation, there's not a very good view 
understanding that we have that will allow God to communicate to us. Uh, just think about if you were trying to, I've used this example before, explain the function of your cell phone to someone who was living at the time of Christ. I mean, think about all the background that you would have to give them to help them understand the purpose of these things that you know, are so ubiquitous in our society today. And in a sense, that's what God has done throughout his scripture. So that by the time the Apostle John writes the book of Revelation, all that context has been given. And because that context is given, now God gives and unfolds certain viewpoints, certain information that he could not have given us up to that point because in a sense he had to create that language. He had to give us the understanding so that we could understand the book of Revelation. And that begins right here in Genesis. And I would say this, that every major theme of the scripture you can find in the first three chapters of Genesis. And one of the things that we've been doing as a church is we've been going through the book of Matthew together. And we've seen that there's some very important themes in the book of Matthew, right? Because as you go through the book of Matthew, by chapter two, you're getting introduced to prophecy and how Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. But for those of you who are going through us in the book of Matthew, you thought, oh, these are kind of strange prophecies, because one of the things we saw was these prophecies did not apply directly to Christ. I mean, you take a pastor from Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. And you think, oh, that's Jesus. The more I called him, the more he went away. Wait, that's Jesus? And, and, and you see that that actually wasn't a direct reference to Christ. But Matthew borrows from that imagery and that uh, prophecy about Israel to help us understand the nature of Jesus and his mission. And one of the things that comes clear as you go through the book of Matthew is that Jesus, the part of how God helps us understand who Jesus is, is he's borrowing on Old Testament imagery. And there's one person in particular, right? Anybody want to just shout out who it is? Who is Jesus? He's the new, the new Moses. Jesus is the new Moses. And, and that, that parallel was drawn for us in a number of different ways. I mean, uh, what happened when when Jesus was born, what did Herod do? He slaughtered baby boys. What was it that accompanied uh, Moses being sent as the deliverer of Israel? The Pharaoh's slaughter of the baby boys. You have the same sort of thing. And, and, then, and then that parallel gets drawn out in a number of other ways, including, for example, Jesus taking the disciples up onto the mountain. Can you think of any other great leader of Israel that went up on a mountain and Receive the law, and what does Jesus do up on the mountain? He interprets the law, and so Jesus is in the new Moses. And as you go through the book of Matthew, one of the things you have got to do if you're going to understand the passages is to keep that theme in mind. If you are not bearing in mind that Jesus is the new Moses, as you go through the book of Matthew, a lot of it is going to uh, basically go over your head because there, there will be references that are referring back to that context that Matthew takes so much trouble to lay out. And I would say there's something similar here. Genesis gives us all the major themes of Scripture. And as you go through the Bible and through the prophecies and through the history of Israel, what's being unfolded is a story that includes very significant characters and very significant images, all of which help you understand the story of God and his people. And so Genesis is a very 
helpful book from that standpoint. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God. But the role that Genesis has is it introduces to us the big picture of the Bible. It tells us what this whole thing is about. It lays out all the themes. And, and so what we're going to do as we go through the book of Genesis, we're actually going to spend a good deal of time, uh, and so Gordon and I don't actually know uh, how many years that we're planning to spend in Genesis, and some of you may despair, because today we're doing one word. Uh, well, it's one Hebrew word, which is translated in the beginning, Bereshit. And so um, we're not going to go word by word, <laughs> although Gordon's going to do the second word next week. <laughs> Created. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, we are uh, going to speed up as we go through, but we're probably going to spend a good deal of time here in the first chapter of Genesis because there are so many incredibly significant ideas that you will find echoed again and again and again as you go through the Bible. And if you are aware of them, because Genesis has introduced them, and when you think about the Israelites, when they receive their prophecies, when they receive the revelation from God, the Bible was the one book in their culture. It, it had such a shaping effect on their culture. And so they were familiar with the Old Testament in a way that most of us are not. In fact, one of my, it is probably my favorite commentary because it fills in a weakness that I have. So God's given me two, actually, uh, very good helps in this in that uh, when we look at the New Testament, we really need to understand the Old Testament. And so he's given me one commentary that was edited by uh, D.A. Carson and, and contributed to by a lot of scholars called The Use of the Old Testament in the New. And there are so many references. And so if you, you know, it, it, I think our church has that down in the church library. We have a very good church library. But uh, there are so many things that when I read in there, I think, oh, I would never have thought of that passage. But for the Jewish people, they were immersed in that culture. And so these Old Testament themes were very much present in their minds as they are reading and receiving the Word of God. Uh, the other tool I got that will not be as available to you but is somewhat available to you is my wife because her specialty is Old Testament. She's doing her degree in Old Testament. But the book of Genesis here will help us understand everything that God wants to tell us about ourselves and how we are to live because God is who he is. Now, having said that, that the story is about us and our relationship with God, we are going to spend quite a bit of time talking about who God is. And the reason for that is simply because he is the first. Who is God? He is someone who, well, uh, actually I was talking with Howard just yesterday after the uh, council meeting. And he's, he was talking to me about the systematic theology class he was giving. He, said, he was he's saying, like, there's so many of these attributes of God, and it seems like we're just drawing it out of very few passages. And he said, you know, the eternity God, you know, like, there's not much about that in the Bible. And I was like, Howard, how can you say that? It's all over the scripture. And actually right here, we have one of those evidences of the eternality of God right here in Genesis. Because what do you read here? In the beginning. Well, what is it the beginning of? Well, it's the beginning of us and all of creation. But God, 
was already there, right? Because in the beginning, he's the actor. He's not coming into being. He's already there. And so that helps us understand one aspect of our relationship to God, and it's a very, very helpful thing. Uh, I'll tell you a joke um, about uh, one of our sons, and uh, how many of you have read The Hobbit, the book The Hobbit? Just raise your hand. Just, oh, quite a few of you. Okay, The Hobbit has this thing that, uh, this, this uh, scene that I really enjoy where Bilbo Baggins has gotten separated from the dwarves, and they're under the mountain. They've just escaped from the Goblin King. And if you remember, he's, he's, he, uh, he's gotten separated from the orcs because at some point they're attacked by the orcs or goblins and, and uh, he, he smacks his head against the, uh, I think he's being carried by one of the dwarves and he smacks his head and he, he's knocked out. And then he comes to and he's all alone under the mountain. And now he has to get out. And then on his way out, he runs into this dead end that ends in a lake. And on the lake, there's a little creature. You guys remember Gollum, uh, Smeagol. And in order to get out, Bilbo plays a riddle game with him. And, one of, and, and, and so we like these riddles. Like, I remember one of them. What, is, uh, what walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs at night? And that's one of the questions that, that uh, uh, Gollum and, and Bilbo are exchanging in the riddle game. And if you remember it, it's, it's a human being, right? Because when you're born, you're crawling on all fours. And then when you're people our age, we're walking on two feet. And then as we get older, now you need a cane, and so you're on three. Uh, and so uh, when we were reading through that in our family, one of the things we started doing is we were asking each other these riddles, and we were making up riddles like this. And one of our sons, who was a little bit younger than the other ones, did not like that because he always wanted to keep up with his big brothers. And so when, uh, when we would start asking these riddles, he wanted to cut that process short because it was not one that he could really participate well at. And so he'd always just say, nothing, no one. Uh, <laughs> he'd just do that all the time. And, and <laughs> one day we had uh, this young lady visiting us, and she, she, she came up with a riddle, and she said uh, something about, uh, it was along the lines of, what has a body but cannot be seen? And Cass and like, oh, we're not doing this again. He said, nothing, no one. Nobody. And she's like, that's right. <laughs> he had gotten it. No body. <laughs> who is God? God is someone who depends on nothing. He owes his existence to nobody. He is the first. And so he is the foundation of everything. And he is the reason for everything, because he was the first. And so scientists to this day are, are, are you know, looking for things like the origin of the universe. And one of the questions with that is, okay, uh, if you posit that the universe began with the Big Bang, and that started from a point of infinite mass, but all that does is, is it just puts off the, the question one layer, right? Because then where did who initiated this uh, process whereby this point of infinite mass explodes, releases energy and matter into the universe, and, and begins everything. As Christians, what we say is that infinite regression stops with God. He is the first cause. He is the first mover. 
God is the foundation of all that is. And because he is the first, knowledge also begins with him. And that brings us to a very helpful, very reassuring aspect of the nature of who God is. And I, um, hmm. okay, I'm going to keep talking for a while. Irene, can you run down to my office? And in my backpack, I have a C.S. Lewis book, uh, Mere Christianity. Can you bring it up here? Sorry, I was supposed to have it here, and I forgot that. Um, but the reason that it's important that God is the foundation is that if he is the foundation of everything, then whether we like it or not, we have to reckon with him. We have to engage with him. We have to take him into account, so to speak. So, for example, if I say, well, there's a fire up on the third floor, and supposing there actually was, which there isn't, Gordon, but if there was a fire up on the third floor and I said, but heat is just a state of mind. Let's go up and after our service, we'll have our white harvest discussions up there. Pay no attention to the fire. It doesn't matter. Whether I acknowledge or not, fire would still be deadly. Inhaling smoke would still be hazardous to your health. The thing is, is, is whether we acknowledge it or not, reality is reality. And if God is the one who began everything, if he is the foundation of all that is, then all this universe bears his mark upon it. It, is, it exists according to his plan and according to his design. And so if this is the story about God telling us who he is, then we have to acknowledge God's truth. We have to live according to his truth. What we might say is that living according to the truth of God is the way to human flourishing. And to the extent that we reject God and we reject his truth, then that leads to human suffering because we are living in a way that is contradictory to him. And so, oh, thank you, honey. And so I want to read to you a quote, which is interesting because when I read this as a young boy, I just thought, well, this is very obviously true. And at the time that Lewis wrote it, I think he thought, well, this is very obviously true. And I, I would not have been able to imagine a time in which it was not true. But let me just read uh, this short quote to you. Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant, but however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things they say. They say things like this. How would you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day, educated people as well as uneducated, and children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. 
nearly always, he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard, or that if it does, there is some special excuse. He pretends that there is some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it, or that things were quite different when he was given the bit of orange, or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it about which they really agreed. Now, if we hold to the scripture as our standard, that has some very significant consequences that Lewis has just talked about here. Because if we, as a community, as a church, agree that this is the very word of God, that this does reflect truth in the way that God has made it, then we would agree that the Bible does show us the way of goodness. It does show us what is right. Following its truth does lead to human flourishing. But we live in a time and culture where many of the truths I think uh, we have grown up with today are not truths that our community would agree with. And in fact, uh, what Lewis says in this book, very rarely does the other person say, to hell with your standard, is something that perhaps very much would happen today if we as Christians try to assert the truth of the scripture. And so if we are trying to live according to the word of God, if we're trying to appeal to its truth, but our culture has rejected it, what then? What good is the truth of God to us? Well, uh, this might be news to some college students, but let me give you an example. I need sleep. One of the things that oftentimes happens is that uh, if I haven't gotten enough work done during the week, which happened again this week, then on Saturday nights, last night, which very thankfully we had daylight savings time because that helped. <laughs> but I will not get as much sleep as I like, which means that after our service a day, I'm probably going to go home, and I almost will certainly take a nap, and I have two choices. I can take a nap voluntarily, or I can take a nap involuntarily. And I hope that if I take an involuntary nap, it doesn't happen when I'm driving my car. <laughs> the point is here is that if I understand how God has made me, then I want to live according to how God created me, and according to his truth. And, and some of us can flout those laws for a time, especially if you're young. But as you get older, you realize the best path for my flourishing is if I obey these laws that God has given. And it does not matter, in some sense, if anyone else agrees with it. Now, to the extent that they disagree with it, and that we keep using this uh, example of sleep, I was just talking with uh, Matthew, this last week, and we were talking about this whole process of, of uh, residency that medical students go through. 
And my, one of my past roommates that I used to live with was a surgeon, and, and he was uh, just going to surgery at a time that I was just going to law, and so I was working like 60 to 70 hours a week. He was working ungodly hours, wouldn't come home sometimes for five days in a row. Um, and so we, <laughs> although we were roommates for like, I think like five years, we, we, we really didn't see each other a whole lot. Uh, but one of the things that I talked about with him, because he was going to surgery, and I realized, oh, sometimes this guy will be like, working five days in a row, on call, so like you could try to catch a nap here and there, but if something came up, you'd, they'd wake you up and you'd have to go do a surgery or something like that. And I, th I asked him at one point, I was like, why is it that the medical field thinks it's a good idea if like I have some kind of accident and I'm going to the emergency room and I need someone to perform life-serving surgery on me, that I would want to have someone who hasn't slept for four days to do that surgery, and, and just thinking, that's not the way to human flourishing, is it? I mean, would any of you want that? Um, but we, God has made us, and as he's made us, we do well when we live according to his truth. And if others accept that truth, then we'll do better also. And so if the medical community decided, oh, we're going to stop putting our residents through this. In fact, we want them to be at their physical peak when they're performing their surgeries or checking you out and things like that, and then they'll make fewer mistakes. It just seems like that's obvious. But I have to say there's a certain way in which human flourishing happens even when we go against the will of God, right? Because I used to be a lawyer, and lawyers uh, can make money from medical malpractice suits, and if people had all the rest they needed, there'd probably be fewer medical malpractice suits, and lawyers would not do as well. I don't think that's the kind of human flourishing we want, right? We want the kind of human flourishing that happens when we live in accordance with reality, when we live in accordance to how we are made, our ontology. Now, even if, again, people in our culture reject the truth of God, this is not a case where ignorance is bliss. But when we know these truths, including some truths about ourselves and our relationship with God and who we are, for example, the fact that we're sinners, knowing these truths also helps us in another way. Because knowing the truth and knowing the broken state of our relationship with God, we know that we need to come back into relationship with Him. And this helps us know how we need to act. And here's another observation in terms of our society. How are we going to get along as a society? One of the things that many of you no doubt have noticed is that we're living in an increasingly fractured society that's dividing into all these different interest groups. How do you mediate between them? Well, one of the things that we're looking at as a church in terms of our vision for this upcoming year is we want to be a church that is grounded on the Word of God. And part of that is it is in the truth of God that we can be a united community. So that if, uh, for example, I and William Suhu have a disagreement, how would you guys come to mediate between the two of us? How would you come to help us reconcile? How would you come to help us solve the issues that we have between us? As a church, what we would say is God's word is truth. And so the unity that we have, the commonality that we have, the way that we would get along must depend upon this foundation. It must depend upon the word of God. It then becomes a good arbiter, 
the thing that helps us resolve the kind of disagreements that we have with one another. Everyone makes judgments. Everyone decides what they think is right and what they think is wrong. And here's the thing. If you reject the scripture, one of the questions that you could ask, for example, your non-Christian friends is, how do you determine right and wrong? Well, in a sense, we all determine it for ourselves. But as Christians, what you, in a sense, have done is given up some of your autonomy. I do not get to choose what is right or wrong. Why do I not get to choose? Because God has told me what is right and what is wrong. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the beginning of wisdom. But if you reject it, where do you get it from? You have to depend on some other source. Now, for many people, that's themselves. They determine what's right and wrong. And I think you can, of course, see a lot of weaknesses with that. Uh, one among them, which is that's a very arrogant position to take. And so uh, one of the accusations against Christians is, oh, you people are so arrogant. You think you have the truth. Well, one thing is they've just asserted a truth, right? They think, or that we think we know the truth, and that we're wrong to think that we know the truth. Well, that's an assertion. That's a truth. And they're assuming they know it. What's the foundation for their knowing it? What is their epistemology? What is their foundation for knowledge? As Christians, in a sense, I've taken a humbler position. I've said God has spoken. And I do not get to determine what is wrong or what is right myself. But it is another person's truth. It is the truth that determines rightness or wrongness. But how do you determine it then? Are you the one who chooses right and wrong? And if you look back through history, many cultures, many peoples have decided they could choose right or wrong for themselves. Right? And so we have... Uh, in our own nation, uh, many examples of history of great injustices, slavery, the atrocities that were committed against the Indians, the native people of this land. You look at other cultures, the, one of the more horrific examples we have in history, it was of uh, Nazi Germany and their culture determination that Jews were not fit to live. Well, are we willing to say that we will let human beings decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong? We're blind to our own culture in many ways, our own culture's um, atrocities, uh, partially because we become accustomed to them. Even if we agree that they're wrong, we rarely feel that they're as wrong as what might actually be the case. Take, for example, abortion. If we went around murdering babies, um, you know, the children that are in uh, our uh, nursery, people would say that was horrible, right? And yet we don't have that same emotional response to the perhaps over 60 million babies that have been aborted. How do we determine right or wrong? What is the standard? And as C.S. Lewis pointed out many years ago, we have to have a standard. When people argue, there must be some common reference of truth. And best of all, if that reference for truth is what truth 
actually is. And so when we read here, in the beginning, and God is the one who was there at the beginning. God is the one. He is the foundation upon which all creation is established. Then it is his truth. And we as a Christian community have an enormous advantage, enormous gift that God has given us. And the gift that he has given us is that he has given us his word. And so our disagreements can be resolved. The decisions that we have to make about life. What should I do for my family? How is it that I'm going to live? Do I need to obey my parents? How do I treat my children? All these things are revealed to us by God because he is the one that was at the beginning. He is the one who established all that there is. And the point that I would like to conclude with is this, is as we look at this, even though the truth in some ways is not very flattering, I mean, we see who we are. We were murderers from the beginning. We're so desperately wicked that Jesus Christ had to descend from heaven and give his life in order to satisfy God's anger against your sin. That's a lot of wrath. And it's not just other people's sin. It's your sin. That's not a flattering truth. But at the end of the day, the story is also about someone who loves you and loves me. And many times, especially when I'm going through a difficult period in my life, I think, like, I'm not a very good person. And I struggle with thinking, oh, what use am I? And feeling very little self-worth. And the truth is, yes, by myself, I'm not worth very much. In fact, I'm kind of a negative value because I'm wicked. But God has told me, this is the story of you and me. And how I've come to redeem you. And how I love you. And so when we struggle, we come to this story. And this story tells us we can be made whole. We can be made new. We can be redeemed. And we are loved. And this story tells us the history of our relationship with our creator, the one who was there at the beginning. He always was. There was a time when we were not. But the promise that he's made is if we will trust in him and pay attention to this story, we can forever be with him again. And that is a truth that we celebrate at the communion table, that promise that God has given us, that this fellowship, which was there at the beginning, will one day be restored and be forevermore. And so I ask that you would prepare your hearts as we prepare for communion. And as we get ready for communion, we also say the Apostles' Creed.